What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 56, The Return of the King. In this episode, the war against the Hyksos reaches its climax. King Armosa and his mother, Queen Ahotep, are in it to win it, and they will wreak their vengeance on land and on river. This episode is brought to you by Brenda and Linda for their support of the podcast. Thank you guys for helping out. I hope you and all my listeners enjoy this very special episode. Remember, if you think the podcast is worth sponsoring, just visit EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com to make a donation via PayPal. Today's episode can be considered a sort of sequel to one that we released more than a year ago. Episode 26, The Fire Rises, told the story of the First Intermediate Period, and the immense civil war which tore the country apart. At the end of that episode, the King of Thebes, Montuhotep II, reunified the country, and initiated the Middle Kingdom. Today's episode takes place about 520 years after Montuhotep's achievement, but the parallels are strong. Egypt begins in disunity and disorder, with fighting between rival factions. Then a king of Thebes emerges to dominate the political world, and finally achieves a reunification of the country. This process kickstarts a new era of political, economic, and cultural prosperity and becomes the third of Egypt's four Golden Ages. But there the similarities end, because the Second Intermediate Period caused changes in Egyptian society, changes that Montuhotep could never have predicted. King Armosa and his family are about to begin something new, something unprecedented. How we get there is the story of today's episode. The story of the reunification takes place over approximately 21 years, but we only have firm records for about mm, six months or so of that period. The rest is fragmentary and shadowy, so we're going to have to adapt and improvise. The story takes place in three distinct sections. First, I will introduce, or reintroduce, the Theban protagonists and set up their life before the war began. Then, I will explore the preparations for that war, and how it would alter Egyptian society in the future. Finally, we tell the tale of the war itself, a lengthy and epic conflict to expel the Hyksos and restore Egyptian unity. 
So enough of the introductions. On with the show. The year was now 1555 BCE. Thebes had just gained a new king, a 10-year-old boy, the brother of Carmos. His name was Armosa I. In a reign lasting 25 years, Armosa would spend half of his life planning for and conducting wars. He would conquer, spill blood, and expand the kingdom. In the process, he became the last king of Dynasty 17 and also the first of Dynasty 18, the instigator of a new golden age for the two lands. But when he came to the throne, Armosa was not ready for war. He needed time, time to learn, time to prepare, and time to grow. Otherwise his fate would be that of his father or brother, an ignominious death and burial, one more king who failed to reunify the country. Fortunately for him, Armosa was not alone. He was being helped and guided by the very best of advisers, his mother, Queen Ahotep. Ahotep was the major power in Thebes, and by the time her second son came to the throne, she had been in power for nearly eight years. By this time, she was certainly experienced, clearly a determined leader, and probably an extremely capable governor. With her in charge, Thebes could survive the death of two kings in the midst of war, and persist even when its new ruler was a child. It would probably be fair to say that pretty much all of the major political events of this period can be connected to Ahotep in some way. While Carmosa and Sekenenre had fought their wars, it was Ahotep holding Thebes together, and she will continue to do so all through this episode. Ahmosa and Ahotep made a good team, and it was their ability to collaborate and rule together that would finally enable the Thebans to defeat and conquer the Hyksos kingdom. By this point, the mission to expel the Hyksos must have become something like a family obsession. They had spent at least eight years working at it, and probably much longer. We've lost the records now, but I would wager good money that we've forgotten a good many 17th dynasty kings who rebelled against their hated Hyksos rivals. Surprisingly, those rivals were pretty quiet during this period. In fact, as far as we can tell, they launched no major offensives against the Thebans, and they stayed within their borders. This is surprising, I think. You would expect that the Hyksos would have attacked as soon as they heard of Carmos's death. I mean, the guy had ravaged their southern vassals, burned towns, taken captives, sent belligerent messages to their king, and then gone home. Why was there no retaliation? The answer to that question is elusive. Simply put, they missed their opportunity. And boy, that was going to cost them big. I hope Armosa counted his blessings, because it gave him the very best gift possible. Time. More than anything else, Armosa needed time. Time to consolidate his power, to learn, to grow, and to train. This was going to take years to achieve not to mention a great deal of material and social resources. 
First things first, the king needed to consolidate his position. Fortunately, his mother had some ideas in that regard. About five years earlier, King Kamosa had made a very sensible choice. Before he launched his campaign in the north, Kamosa consulted the priests of Thebes. He made gifts to their treasury and offerings to the great god, Amun-Re. By doing this, Kamosa had ensured that his war would be approved and encouraged by the god. Ahotep decided that Amosa needed the same kind of divine support, only on a grander scale. But how would they get that? In order to gain the full support of the priesthood, the royal family needed one of their own among its ranks. Someone they could trust, someone they could rely on to act in their interests, someone close, someone loyal. Someone like Amos's wife? Yeah, Amos's wife. That would do nicely. Early in his reign, during a New Year's festival, Amosa issued a proclamation which has survived to this day. Quote, Month three of the inundation, day seven, under the majesty of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Nebpetire, the son of Re Amosa, who lives forever and ever. I have given the office of the second priest of Amun-Re to the god's wife, the great royal wife, Queen Amosa Nefertari. May she live. It was done for her within the household, from generation to generation, heir to heir. None may challenge it for ever and ever. It was done in the presence of the council of Thebes and the servants of the temple of Amun-Re. End quote. This text contains the very essence of Theban court politics, a combination of religious duty, internal nepotism, and careful manoeuvring to ensure the greatest advantage for the king. It specifies that the queen will also become the wife of the god. It ensures that no subsequent generation or royal authority can take this endowment away, and it sets it up as a generational role, one to be passed down from mother to daughter. Putting Amosa Nefertari in among the priests was the best possible way to guarantee that Amun-Re and his priesthood were fully backing them. Was it intrigue? Absolutely. It was politicking worthy of the papacy under the Borgias, cunning, manipulative, and all done within the utter solemnity of religious life. So the king and his mother intervened directly in the secret world of Karnak Temple. They put their closest female relative into high position, and thus strengthened their connection with the priesthood and the god. With the young queen now among the most powerful priests in the country, Ahotep and her son could begin military preparations. This war was going to last years, and it would take them all the way to the gates of Avaris. Now, we have met our two main royal actors. King Amosa and Queen Ahotep. Together they ruled the state, managed the crown's affairs, and organized the strategy and planning for a major war. But that war wasn't really going to be fought by them personally. Sure, they would get involved, both of them actually, and make important contributions. But a war is not fought by a king, it is fought by soldiers. With that in mind, it is time to meet our third protagonist. A commoner, outside the blue bloodline. A soldier, a sailor, and a family man. 
a devoted servant of the king and a survivor of more than seven campaigns over his long life. Let me introduce you to the ship commander, Amos Ibana. Amos Ibana, actually named Amos son of Ibana, was a military man who served under King Amosa and his two successors. His overall career lasted about 40 years, and by the time he died, he was among the most decorated soldiers in the land. Quote, The crew commander Amos, son of Ibana, the justified, he says, I speak to you, all people, to let you know what favours came to me. I have been rewarded with gold seven times in the sight of the whole land, with male and female slaves as well. I have been endowed with many fields. The name of this brave man is in that which he has done, and it will not perish in the land for ever. That text comes from Amos Ibana's tomb, in which he prepared a lengthy autobiography detailing his achievements in life and the prestige which he gained from service to the king. Amos Ibana was born around 1562 to the sailor Baba Rainet and his wife Ibana. They lived in a town called Nekeb, which today we know as El Kab. Quote, I grew up in the town of Nekeb, my father being a soldier of Sekenenre the Justified. Baba, son of Rainet, was his name. My mother was Ibana, a woman of the town. I became a soldier in my father's stead on the ship, the Wild Bull, in the time of the Lord of the Two Lands, Nebpetire Amosa, the Justified. I was a youth who had not yet married, and I slept in a hammock of netting. End quote. It seems that Amos Ibana grew up in the shadow of his father, the soldier and sailor Baba Rainet. He followed in his footsteps and even took over his position on the same warship. In other words, Amos Ibana was part of a military family. This probably helped him, as the connections and name of his father helped to open doors to promotion that were otherwise closed. It would have helped him build his own personal reputation and gained the attention of the king. Amos Ibana did not squander that opportunity, as we will see. Amos Ibana and Baba Rainet are examples of a brand new phenomenon. This phenomenon is known as the military family, a subculture attached to armies and armed forces. It can be defined in many different ways depending on the time period, but in ancient Egypt you would refer to a family as a military family when two or more generations served in the armed forces. Ideally, they would both serve in the same branch, like the army or the navy, with each generation inheriting the same role as their parents. Before Dynasty 17, Egypt did not have a standing army. Kings marshaled soldiers periodically, and they sent them home again at the end of the campaign season. For many, that might be the end of their involvement, and the army changed over time. But we are now entering a period where the army and the navy began to develop a core of dedicated individuals who served constantly. They served year after year, in campaign after campaign, and when they grew too old to serve, they passed their jobs on to their children. Amos Ibana was part of a new breed, the dedicated soldier, 
serving for most of their lives. They became commanders, generals, and admirals. They became wealthy, as military service brought with it plunder, slaves, and grants of farmland. They even became influential, as they spent years in the presence of the king, and had numerous opportunities to get his attention. Finally, they began to get political influence, until one day Egypt was ruled by kings, who were generals first and rulers second. Serving in the Egyptian army was not an easy life. It was a lot of movement back and forth, up and down the country. Then, at periodic intervals, you'd experience a burst of extreme violence before returning to the back and forth. Amosi Bana was about to experience the full front of this as the king of Thebes began to marshal his troops for war. The year was now 1544 BCE. The king was 21 years old and had already been on the throne for 11 years. Things were beginning to fall into place. Amos was old enough and well trained. His mother was in charge of the city and the kingdom, keeping things together while he went off adventuring. His wife was one of the most important priests in the country, the wife of a god and a powerful figure in the temple of Karnak. On top of that, his army was well trained, probably built around that small corps of veterans who'd been fighting since the days of Karmosa, a decade earlier. They were well armed, well prepared, and ready for a fight. So now there was nothing left to do, except the war itself. Before he left on his first campaign, Amosa went to the temple of Karnak as a worshipper. With his wife Amosa Nefertari accompanying him as priest, the king approached the sanctuary for the god's blessing. He made offerings before the god's statue as attendants sang hymns to the great being. Incense burned, food and drink were offered to the divinities, and the prayers were recited. Amidst this haze of smoke and song, the command of the god was received and interpreted by the priestess queen. The command, of course, was war. With the authority of God behind him and a veteran army at his back, Amos is set off in his ships. The year was 1544, around March. The army and navy packed themselves into riverboats, accompanied by donkeys, weapons, and enough food for a short campaign. Anything else they needed would have to forage from the land, taking food and supplies from local communities. Where there was any resistance? Well, you can imagine. Armosa must have realised that the war would not be won overnight, but I wonder if he realised that he was beginning a conflict that would last nearly ten years. It was a conflict to rival that of Troy, still 300 years in the future, and arguably more important. It would shape the destiny of Egypt in a very real way, a political revolution that began a new era. This war of liberation would kickstart a three-century period of imperialism, conquest, and bloodshed, with the Egyptians at the forefront of world affairs in a way that they simply never had been before. They were going to conquer, enslave, burn, and destroy. They would be the most powerful nation on earth. And it all starts here, on the banks of the river, in the town of Thebes. The river boats were preceded by an advance guard. This guard, mostly scouts and bowmen, 
would fan out across the river valley and hinterland as the army travelled north. They would assess the terrain, keep an eye on people and communities nearby, and make sure that the army did not run into an ambush. Quote, My valiant army was in front of me like a blast of fire. The troops were on the upper part of the cabins to seek out the Asiatics and to push back their positions. East and west had their fat, and the army foraged for things everywhere. I set out a strong troop of the Medjai bowmen while I was on the day's patrol. End quote. That quote comes from the annals of King Kamos when he launched his great war. It tells us a few things about how the Egyptian army worked in the field. For one thing, they travelled light. Instead of carrying as many supplies as possible, they let the land provide their needs. This would slow down the army a bit, as the troops spent more of their daylight hours foraging rather than scouting or marching. It also meant that the economic effect on small towns and farming estates was mm, brutal. The army came through, and like a swarm of locusts, stripped the countryside of goods. It saved them the effort of planning, sure, but it was not a good approach for the long-term health of the kingdom. Unfortunately, that was just a reality of pre-modern warfare, and you can probably imagine King Armosa saying something along the lines of this. You must make it your guiding principle that the war must feed the war. Those are the words of Napoleon Bonaparte. Its meaning is simple. Where possible, the army should provide its own needs and pay for itself off the forage of the land and the plunder of conquest. It's perhaps the most ancient principle of warfare and one that is still practiced today. It doesn't work all that often, but the Egyptians were not bothered. They had a mission and they had time. Everything else, well... That was simply a matter of perseverance. From 1544 to 1538, the war proceeded in slow stages of expansion. Year on year, season on season, the Egyptian army isolated Hyksos vassals and subjugated them. They attacked, subdued, and consolidated, then periodically returned home for the planting of new crops. This whole process probably took Amos about five to six years, but eventually he and his army approached their first major goal, the old capital city of Memphis. Memphis was a true prize, the first significant achievement in the war. It was a shadow of its glory days, which were back in the old kingdom, but it was a symbol of the king's legitimacy, and it also had great strategic worth. Memphis sits near the spot where the Nile River turns into the Nile Delta, a winding tributary of a hundred small rivers and canals. If you control Memphis, you can more easily control access to those waterways, and thus dominate the northern area. Taking Memphis was a great achievement. Amosa was now in control of all Egypt south of the Delta. In other words, he had restored about 50% of the original kingdom, and was in a strong position. The Thebans were coming, and they would not stop. Around 1537, his 18th year on the throne, Amosa began the advance into the Nile Delta. It was time to smash the Hyksos, end them once and for all. 
For this part of the war, we actually have some proper records, and can even pinpoint things down to the year and month that they occurred. We also have Amos Ibana narrating some of the major events in which he participated. So what follows is as close as possible to the ancient account. In June of 1537, Amosa took the town of Heliopolis. Heliopolis is a town northeast of Memphis, and it was the site for the most important temple to the sun god Ray. Capturing Heliopolis was good for morale, good for the campaign, and excellent for the king on a symbolic level. It helped solidify his reputation as a servant of the god, a champion of the divine pantheon against the hated foreigners. Things were going well, and Amosa now advanced rapidly. At this point, he implemented a sensible strategy. Instead of going directly for Avaris and risking defeat or delay, he would first isolate it, cut it off, surround it, capture its peripheral defences, and prevent any escape by its inhabitants. Now, the Egyptian army began to move into the delta quickly. Within three months of capturing Heliopolis, they had already reached the Mediterranean and the Sinai Peninsula. Amosa moved past Avaris itself, and in September captured a town called Jaru. Jaru is on the very edge of the delta, where farmland becomes desert, and it's a good starting point for anyone who wants to cross the Sinai. In order to trap the Hyksos in the delta, Amosa took Jaru in 1537 and garrisoned it. This cut off any hope of support from Palestine, and helped secure the Egyptians' flank. By capturing these eastern towns, Amosa isolated his foes, and helped pave the way for the final assault on their capital. That assault was about to begin. The city of Avaris lies at the junction of several riverways. It has a number of harbours, and it was easily accessible. This was excellent for trade, but rather difficult for defence. So when the Thebans arrived, the Hyksos were going to be hard-pressed. They would have to defend on land and on sea, across a large area, and they couldn't necessarily rely on reinforcements. The Hyksos kings were aware of this deficiency, and they had spent at least the last ten years fortifying the city. They built new walls around it, ready to defend against the oncoming foe. From land and sea, it was going to be a formidable challenge to conquer. In June of 1536, the Egyptian army finally came to Avaris. The Nile flood was just beginning, and the waters were rising, perfect for attacking a harbour city. As the water of the Nile began to rise, King Amos's ships began to approach the enemy's walls. Soldiers would attack those walls, while sailors disembarked their ships to attack from the beaches. Thankfully for us, Amos Ibana was along for the ride, and he recorded his deeds in battle. Quote, I was appointed to the ship called Rising in Memphis. Then there was fighting on the water in Perjedku of Avaris. I made a seizure and carried off a hand. When it was reported to the Royal Herald, the gold of valour was given to me. Then they fought again in this town. Again I made a seizure there, and carried off a hand. Then I was given the gold of valour once again. End quote. Amos Ibana was quickly earning a reputation. 
he captured or seized at least two of the enemy, and killed two more in single combat. To prove his success, he cut off his dead foe's right hands. These could be added to the Theban tally, and proved Armosa's prowess. Hell yeah. King Armosa, meanwhile, would have been surrounded by his bodyguards and archers. Whether he saw any combat personally is tough to say. I think at this point it's pretty clear that the Theban kings were not averse to danger and getting into the fray. That being said, forensic examinations of Armos's mummy suggest that he might have suffered from arthritis. If that was true, then fighting would be difficult, and he probably stayed in his chariot as a symbol for the troops. Either way, the wall carvings of the day suggest that Armosa would have been accompanied by battalions of archers and spearmen, so he probably wasn't in the front lines himself, but he was on the field, inspiring his men, and he was in danger. That's good enough, I think. The battle for Avaris could have taken months if the Hyksos were well prepared. They had powerful walls, skilled warriors, and, most importantly, no hope of escape. Put that together, and men tend to fight with incredible ferocity and tenacity. Avaris was well fortified, and the Egyptians did not have access to catapults or battering rams, things that would help them break walls easily. They did, however, have ladders and towers, and they knew how to damage mud-brick walls relatively easily. But using those still left soldiers exposed to their enemies' attacks. The casualties must have been high. The battle ground on, day in and day out. Amozibana, fighting on the waters of the canals, took two prisoners and killed two enemies. Bloody but necessary work, and good for the soldier's reputation. When the dust settled, he could look forward to being rewarded by the king, and praised for his valiant service. These kind of fights must have been going on all around the town. Men slaughtered men, and hundreds died. But the Egyptians just kept pushing. They were so close. To stop now would be madness, and for King Armosa there was no other option. Retreat would be an insult on his father's memory, and a waste of his brother's efforts. There was no other choice. Eventually, the city of Avaris fell. We do not know when or how. If the Egyptians conquered it forcefully, they did not leave a significant destruction layer. If the townsfolk opened the gates, we are not told about it. Either way, the Egyptians broke through the walls. The city of Avaris fell in 1536 BCE, and the Hyksos, as a political entity in the Nile Valley, were destroyed. The war did not end with the fall of Avaris. It would drag on for three more years in the land of southern Palestine. But the capture of this city, the last Hyksos stronghold in the delta, marked the reunification of Egypt for the first time in 150 years. The second intermediate period was over.
1536, regnal year 19, under Re is a landmark year. The king of Upper and Lower Egypt now actually was the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. The country was united behind a single monarch, an age of disunity, the bane of the Egyptian royal ideology, was over. When the dust settled, the last Hyksos had fled Egypt, running headlong across the Sinai Peninsula and into safer lands. Their final defeat would not come for three more years, but that is a story for another time. Next episode, we explore the end and aftermath of this war, and the beginning of the new era. We focus particularly on the achievements of Queen Ahotep and her daughter, Queen Ahmosa Nefertari. These two women were powerful leaders of the day, and their influence in the country reached into the realm of politics, religion, and even warfare. You see, while Ahmosa was conducting his war in the north, Ahotep had a chance to fight her own. She was going to lead troops against a foe in military engagement, and she was going to nail it.